2: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. On this week's edition, we step into a deep and complex digital universe. So we take down from our archive shelf a conversation with composer Jessica Curry. You are transported to a desolate Hebridean island, the lost shores of a dreamed coastline. Let's press play and experience Dear Esther.
1: Without wanting to sound too pretentious, it really is like a psycho-geographical journey. It's a journey of the mind. How do you write interactive fiction that can be enjoyed and appreciated and understood when the player has control of that story?
2: Back on the evening of the 14th of October 2016, you could have experienced this digital story construct come to life, with it being played or performed in front of you, narrated on the evening by Oliver Dimsdale with a live performance of Jessica Curry's string-led score. I've begun my voyage in a paper boat without a bottom. I will fly to the moon in it. I've been folded along a crease in time, a weakness in the sheet of life. Now you've settled on the opposite side of the paper to me. In the year of the concert, I travelled by train to Brighton, to the HQ of the Chinese Room, the immersive video game company which created Dear Esther. I spoke to composer Jessica Curry.
1: Well, I was dragged into the world of video games very reluctantly by my husband Dan, who (laughs) was writing his PhD on what would happen if you took all gameplay out of a game and that became Dear Esther. So I was right I was a freelance composer at the time, not working in the world of video games at all. Dan asked me to write this completely, you know, music for a very theoretical project which then turned out to be a massive critical and commercial hit which then led us into the part of the Chinese room making a computer game company and yeah it's just been a crazy five years
2: I would imagine you had some apprehensions because I mean the the cliches of computer games are that the music is functional and and not very interesting
1: yeah I mean I hadn't played a video game since I was a child unlike Dan who's completely obsessed by first person shooters so it wasn't so much apprehension as just complete ignorance. And Dan and I had been collaborating a lot on other projects. We'd done a Second Life project with the Royal Opera House. Um, we'd done sound walks together. We'd done a commission for the Welcome Trust. So for me, it was just another form of collaboration with him, really. Mm. And I wasn't so bothered about what the medium was. It was more about getting to work with him
4: mm.
1: and his beautiful words. And I think if I'd thought more about it, I probably wouldn't have done it. And because it wasn't for anything commercial it wasn't like I've got to write the best music or mm. the most pressured music that'll ever be it's just I'm going to write what I enjoy something that really mm. pours out of me and I think in a way that's what people responded to that it wasn't with any commercial bent at all it was just a passion project. Mm.
2: Uh, l- let's talk about the world I mean how, how would you describe it?
1: Desolate, lonely, <laughs> grief laden, do come to the Barbican event it's <laughs> going to be very fun and um, it is Without wanting to sound too pretentious, it, it really is like a psycho-geographical journey. It, it, it's a journey of the mind. So it's set on a remote Hebridean island, but actually it's about the player's experience mm. as they find out what happened in this story. And it, it's kind of half-ghost story. It's about hidden secrets and just a man's thinking about his life and what he's done and what's happened to him. So it, it was very new at the time for video games to explore such deep themes actually and I think that's why it got such the massive response that it did at the time because no one else was doing it really.
2: It's interesting that because you, you call it a video game but maybe, maybe it isn't a video game it's I don't know it's, it's a what now would maybe more described as a virtual reality experience.
1: Well you can't say that because we've had years <laughs> of being absolutely thrashed online about people asking is it a game I mean it, it started off a whole new academic wow. discussion really about what is it art can video games be art is it a game mm. if it doesn't have any gameplay in it so I'm now going to boss you over the head with your microphone to make that <laughs> question stop because we've been dealing with it for years and Danzo is really very black and white about it mm. said if it's you know uses video game technology then it is a game but you know obviously there's much more uh, grays to that black and white argument but um i just consider it to be a really beautiful piece of work and again i'm not so concerned about is it a theatre piece is it a novel anymore i think so much more cross media stuff's happening mm. and i think people are getting more accepting of that kind of mishmash of genres mishmash isn't a word but
2: i can see your traces in the ink that soaks through the fiber the pulped vegetation when we become waterlogged and the cage disintegrates, we will intermingle. When this paper aeroplane leaves the cliff edge and carves parallel vapour trails in the dark, we will come together. You mentioned um, Dan's words, um, and I think that's quite a nice thing to, to, to go into, into, Dear Esther. I mean, as you travel through this world you hear you hear this what this story which i suppose has just been sort of cut up for a better phrase
1: well there are three um variations of dan's narrative that can trigger as you go through the game so you probably won't get the same well you definitely won't get the same experience when you play through the game again and that was the beginning of an experiment for us which ended up in our last game everybody's gone to the rapture which is an open world game where you can experience the story and any way that you choose so i think esther was that early experiment of how far we could push that and rapture so much more
4: Mm.
1: not sophisticated but just takes it so much further as a concept i think of how do you write interactive fiction that can be enjoyed and appreciated and understood in when the player has control of that story
2: Mm. and and what did you react to How, how did you write the music
1: Dan's words are always really inspirational. They're beautiful and very poetic and very different. The island itself really spoke to me because it is so remote and it's so romantic. It's about his dead wife. It is a love letter to Esther. And I think most people that listen to and love my music would say that I have a very sort of romantic sensibility. Mm. It's very poetic, my music. It's epic in scale. It allows you a lot of time and space to think and dream. So in a way it was the perfect Mm. space for me to write music into. And it's just, there's just something so, that emptiness um, that really spoke to me about one man's journey through his life and through his experiences and I think as a composer that's you know and then with Everybody's Gone to the Rapture Dan said I want you to write a love letter to the end of the world and I was like yeah I love being married <laughs> to this man because he, he has a large soul and I really mm. love that <laughs>
2: a little bit through the process I think it took two years to develop so were you sort of given sort of sneak previews of sections and then then you wrote the music reacting to that
1: well it was actually really nice and again very unusual for the games industry that it would be kind of cross fertilization of inspiration that uh, Dan would give me a snippet of dialogue and I'd write some music or sometimes he'd say I'm going to write something around these themes and so can you provide the music first and I'll write into the music so it was kind of like sometimes the visuals were coming first sometimes the music was coming first and the artist would respond to that and it was just lovely to have that holistic mm. relationship where it, it's never a traditional master-slave relationship with the music with the games in the Chinese room that sometimes the music is so at the forefront of what's happening and sometimes it provides more of a traditional route through
2: mm. yeah I mean uh, uh, looking through that you know when you experience the game the music helps you kind of feel that you can go from one chapter to the other I think
1: yeah I think again you're so bombarded in games as a whole it's what they do really well is that they kind of fire action at you all the time and you're changing action states as we say in the industry all the time so you're going from a combat state to a oh, few relief state and everything and then the music changes and what was really interesting about Dear Esther is that actually it's one psychic mood in a way that Mm. pushes through the whole game and it allowed me so much more freedom as a composer to just completely follow the mental state of that person without having to go and now they're about to go into a fight so come on change the music which is so often happens and why music can often I think be quite weak in video games is because it is always the slave it's always Mm. following with films you're always scoring at the actuality of what's going on, and you can be really nuanced. And if someone just turns their head or, or sighs in a certain way, the composer can score that. With video games, you don't know where the player particularly is going to be. They may choose to go left at a point, mm-hmm. and it triggers a completely different set of dialogues. So you're always providing a, a wash in a way. And it was my determination as a game composer to write strong music that gave a really authored experience to the player. It wasn't about those conventions of just this sort of very ambient or Mm. kind of very expressive, this is what you have to feel right now. I wanted to trust the player more than that, be be able still to give them very beautiful music. I don't think I answered your question there at all. (laughs) I just went off on my own little flight of fancy then.
2: Recording the music, I mean, was that a normal procedure or again, was that quite different?
1: No, that was a normal kind of filmic procedure. Um, I'd had a big gap from writing music and that was probably the most memorable thing for me that I'd had sort of four years off to raise my little boy and Esther was the first project that I stepped back into, and so I just remember the thrill actually of being back in the recording studio with live musicians. Mm. It's still my very favourite part of composing. You go through all the hell and the bitterness, often you know jealousy of other people, hatred, loneliness, <laughs> general despair, really. And then you get into the studio and you go, "Oh God, this is going to be the awful." As you can see, I'm a very positive person, <laughs> but you know you have this moment where they're yeah. all sitting there, they're hard. And Musicians, they do this every day. You want it to be good, Mm. and you think, Are they going to start? and it's just going to be noise, and then they start, and it's and it isn't just noise, and it is what you hoped for, but it's also more than that. And that's what I remember from Dear Esther is I had cracking players and they are the people who are going to be playing at Dear Esther Live which is amazing Mm. to get the original gang back together. Some of them played on the Rapture soundtrack as well and it's so nice to have that original gang of people back together.
2: Let's talk about the concert. How on earth do you take something which is obviously (laughs) a a single person experience and and turn it into a a shared experience?
1: I got in touch with Chris Sharp, a music programmer at the Barbican. I said, look, I've got a bit of a crazy idea. And because there's quite a lot of snobbery about game music, especially in classical London, I thought he was going to go go away madwoman. But he was so sweet and accepting and curious. And I really loved that about him. So many people just went, oh no, I've heard, you know, even though if I don't know gay music, I don't like it somehow. Or it's not proper music. And Chris just had so much more of an open mind. So I knew it was the right people to partner with. And I said, look, I don't he said, well how many people do you think are gonna come? And I was like, ten. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe nobody will come. And he still pushed ahead. And I really admired him for that, actually. And then after I'd pitched this idea and he'd said yes, I thought, well, how am I actually going to pull this off? And I sat there with a piece of paper and thought, oh, my God, this is actually really, really complicated. Mm. Just in terms of how the conductor, who doesn't know the game, is going to cue the musicians in, is going to cue the actor in, He needs to be queued somehow. Mm. How's that going to happen? So we've been working with uh, Curve, who are our publishers for the console version of Dear Esther that's coming out later this month. They've had to make us a completely new build of the game that has those trigger cue points sort of visualised so the conductor will be looking at the monitor saying okay now it's Q four because of course Dan my husband is going to play the game live on stage so this is what's different about it is it's not like a film score where you think well I know this happens at this
3: you have an Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: point Dan could also choose to go anywhere in the game at any point so that's really scary for the conductor (laughs) for the players and it is an experiment which I'm hoping is going to pay off we have a rehearsal the day before the concert Mm -hmm. And that will be to see, you know, hopefully that the technology's working, that the musicians understand the relationship between the screens and the conductor and that everyone manages to come in at the right time. But it hasn't really been done before. Um, mm. Austin Wintry's is doing it in America with Journey, but it's quite different to this. Mm. So we are at the sort of vanguard of live game performances. And of course, game music is being performed around the world but not with a live playthrough of the game. So that's the challenge. Mm. I'll say challenge, I'll say the exciting (laughs) bit of it.
2: One of the other great things as well is, I mean, again, unless you have a lot of money, you're not going to be experience, experiencing the game on a big screen. So you, we're going to have, in, in Milton Court, we're going to have the giant screen and and, and the lights and uh, we won't have the smells, I don't think, <laughs> but but we're really <laughs> going to am, may, maybe immersed more than anyone's been before.
1: Yeah, it's such an immersive game anyway, and I think it's such a beautiful game. And what was interesting to us, you know, we brought it out on PC. Like I said, we're just about to do the console version, so it's coming out for PlayStation and Xbox. And we thought, this was five years ago, technology moves on so quickly in this industry. Are we going to sit down and look at Dear Esther and go, oh God, it was good for its time, but it's dated. And that was a real concern for us. And actually, when we did sit down to play it again, Rob Briscoe's visuals are still absolutely stunning Mm. and pretty unparalleled. I think the cave section seen on the big screen is going to be a real moment for people and it's such a loved game and there's so much excitement about the people have put their tickets because I think because the game was so different and was so new to be able to experience it with the live players with the narrator is going to be I hope I came to see Philip Glass at the Barbican a few years ago doing Beauty and the Beast and it's one of those evenings where you go I was there And this probably, it'll be repeated, but it'll never be quite the same as this. It's one of those unique moments where you feel together with the rest of the audience. It doesn't happen every time you go and see something live, but sometimes, I've had it at the proms as well, where there is a collective feeling from the audience where you exchange a look Mm. and go, I was here. And that's what I hope this concert is going to be, one of those really special nights for people.
2: We've come from the point of view of computer games, but I would say that, there may be people out there who want to take a little bit of a risk and you you don't have to have ever played a computer game to to enjoy the concert
1: absolutely not i would say do give it a go it is such a beautiful looking game mm. and it, a lot of people said you know it's a very beautiful interactive experience it's like the most wonderful film that you can play through i think if you like post classical music with great players if you like beautiful images and a good story then give it a try i think it we're really desperate to try and get non-games players to experience our games mm. because they don't actually require much dexterity, which sounds silly, but is a real barrier for lots of people. If mm. you're not a you know, PlayStation console player, then it can be really, really hard if you're just mashing buttons and not getting anywhere. But our games are very simple, and this is where you just get back to you know, sit back and enjoy it. So I hope it will bring the audiences in for us. to my friends who don't play games and like a game with everybody's gone to the rapture which was the last game we made people cannot believe how sucked in they are by the story and how absolutely exquisitely beautiful it is and the production quality of the music and i think we're just at the beginning of seeing hopefully those new mm. audiences brought in for for games like ours because Like I said, I didn't play games because I didn't think there was anything for me. And I think people who love good films and good stories should start to explore what is out there for them in the world of video games because I think they'd be really pleasantly surprised now, actually.
2: It's quite funny because I I read a review of a film recently, which I can't remember the name of, but it it was actually virtually they were saying it wasn't a film, it was a computer game. (laughs) So as you say, that that boundary does keep blurring.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I hope that continues because I just think... Like I say, Dan and I worked together for a long time before this project. and We were always looking for the perfect space for our collaborations. And for me, games is such an exciting... It's not a new industry, but it's still new enough to be able to put innovative, mm. quality experiences into it that haven't been done before. And like I said, virtual reality for me is just the next step along the road of that. If, what games do so well is they make you feel like the centre of that journey and it's unique to video games where I mean I absolutely love film I'm obsessed by film but you are very passive as an audience member as a viewer and I think with with games you're in the centre of the experience you're controlling your destiny and it's a very powerful experience and VR is going to be the next level of that where you're just completely immersed in that world so there's lots of it I'd say to creators as well who are looking for exciting platforms mm. it's really worth having a look at the technology because there's so much exciting stuff going on.
2: Even though you enjoy being in this world, you you do step elsewhere.
1: I did a talk last year at GDC, which is the big game developers conference. And I think it was called something like my extremely interesting but desperately unstrategic career. And I think if I'd have chosen to go down one path, I would have been really, really successful. Like now I'm getting offered a lot of work in the game industry, but not on projects that particularly excite me. But if I was just commercially minded, I could go down that route. But like I said before with Dan, I've always just wanted to do projects that thrill me and excite me and I feel passionate about and the medium is genuinely unimportant. So with the um, Brass and Choral Commission, the Durham Brass Trust got in touch and said, would you like to work with the Poet Laureate, Carol Ann Duffy? I said, oh, all right then, (laughs) if I have to, what a drag. You know, I mean, what an opportunity. You're never going to turn that down because she's one of my favourite Poets. She's extraordinarily talented. And again, it had this, I think all the projects that I've done are rain, sort of gathered together by the fact I love stories. I read English literature first. That was my first degree before I went to the National Film and Television School. And I've always loved hidden stories, secrets. And Carol Ann Duffy took letters home from the First World War, which were obviously just unbearably... Mm. tragic and extremely moving and then she wrote poems that were inspired by those letters and I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to write music for those words Mm. and uh, the concert happened in July and it was so oh it was one of the most extraordinary experiences again a collectively powerful experience Mm. there were lots of veterans there Um, It was a community choir of over 100 singers, 50 brass band players. And both of those things for me, that's why I said yes to the project as well, because those musicians are really rooted in the community choirs. Brass bands, they're about Mm. normal people who can make music, and there's something really strong and powerful conceptually about that for me, just saying it's not an elitist form, actually everyone can do this and traditionally it's been, especially with brass bands, a kind of very working class thing that people can do. I I always just do a a crazy range of projects, I've got some concerts coming up in London um, just before the Barbican actually, I've got um, a commission for the London Gay Men's Choir working with the psychoanalyst Susie Orbach with another extraordinary and random experience where it's called Shame Chorus and each choir member were interviewed by Susie on the subject of shame and then I got an anonymous interview from one of the choir members and got to write the lyrics and the music based on that and it's really funny I was listening to it this morning before you came and it made me cry which doesn't Happen very often anymore because I'm a seasoned, hardened old pro who doesn't feel emotion. But because it was, again, it was someone's real life, and that's mm. tied in for me like the Durham Hymns project with Caroline Ann Duffy. You have a responsibility to those people, I think, when it's real people, whether they're dead or alive. That's really extraordinary as a project, and I can't wait to hear it. I've not heard it yet. And then I've got the BBC Singers coming up in October singing some of the Rapture music, which is really interesting for me because it's about starting to form this relationship with classical performers and organisations, like with the Barbican going, there's some really interesting things happening here. And they were really open to singing a piece from Rapture, so that's happening at... Cripplegate. So these things are slowly moving. So yeah, a, a really random bunch of stuff. I've been writing a madrigal this morning uh, for a Glasgow group called the Madrigals. have asked me to write a Christmas piece for them.
4: Wow.
1: So it's really eclectic, but I wouldn't have... To... <laughs> I know it's a bit crazy, but I genuinely wouldn't have it any other way. I think I'd get so bored just saying I'm a game composer, mm. or I'm a film composer, or I'm a classical composer. And again... It's, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about those breakdowns I think mm. and if you look at people's careers now, they're they're doing opera they're doing TV, yeah. look at Max Richter he's doing all kinds of yeah. interesting projects, he's doing ballet and it doesn't have to be that I'm this one thing anymore yeah. and I just want to do keep doing those projects that keep, wake me up in the middle of the night going I've got a great idea, I want to do it
2: but first of all, one one more journey into, into the world of Dear Esther.
1: I am really looking forward to it. I have to yeah. say, I don't want to admit my nerves on tape. But it, it is going to be, I think, an extraordinary rush that night. And I think it's going to have that feeling yeah. of liveness about it. And I hope that that is a communally wonderful experience. But we shall see. Um, at the moment, I've got a wonderful chap called uh, Lawrence Bush, who's Brighton-based, because I'm very old and not very au fait with technical stuff anymore. He's very young and hip and very on it, and he's helping me with the really hardcore technical requirements. But I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because it's the I'm being interviewed by the Barbecue and it has been a wonderful experience mm. with the Barbican and I'm working with Natasha, who's producing the show, and you work with a lot of really, really bad people, which is, naming no names but it, you do you know you get let down and people are inefficient it has been a wonderfully smooth experience so far so I'm looking forward to it it's a great venue um, I think it's a really fitting place to have the concert so I think it is going to be a special night and it, I, I wonder if it will create more performances of it actually I don't know if this is going to be a one off thing or if then people will say let's do it in other places so that's really exciting for me yeah. as well As will it take on a life of its own I mean, I have to say, I didn't ask my husband, Dan, who is going to be playing the game on stage. I just pitched it to the Barbican without asking him. And then about a month ago, I went, Dan, how do you feel about being in front of about 650 people playing the game live on stage? Oh, yes, and there'll be some musicians and there'll be a narrator as well. And um, he gave me one of those looks that only married couples can give each other of, what have you done to me? I love you. But at this moment, I could cheerfully strangle you so because that's a really big responsibility for him he is the the author of the evening really um so no pressure dan we'll see how it goes
2: Like reading a hard-to-put-down novel, a film with a world so strange it's hard to look away. Dear Esther, to me, was a compelling live experience and has now led to many more. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.